Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it up. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. Good morning, Life Church. It is so good to see you all this morning. I know on a rainy Sunday and a cool Sunday, the temptation is to stay under the covers a little longer, but I see that you are all dedicated Jesus people as well as Packer fans, and I'm not the only one representing today. Well, uh, my name is Pastor Becky. If you don't know who I am, I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church. Please turn your Bible uh, to the book of Psalm, chapter 51. If you don't have access to a traditional Bible, my friends are coming up to the front here, and they have one for you to use or to keep uh, if you'd like. If you have your phone, you can also access the scriptures and all the notes on the YouVersion app, the Bible app there. We have uploaded everything for you. And of course, as usual, we'll have all of that up on the screens for you as well. Now, I have a question for you today. Pastor gave us the option of all the different topics uh, for this series, and I chose the topic of guilt. (laughs) And immediately after, I was like, what did I do? (laughs) I had so many other options. And my question to you is, how often do you find yourself feeling guilty? If you're like me, you might have already forgotten to pick up your kid at school, and you felt guilty about that. It's only one weekend. I've forgotten already. Studies say that we feel an average of five hours of guilt each week. That surprised me. We feel guilty when we spend too much or when we save too little. We feel guilty for working too much or for taking the day off. We feel guilty when we feel sick or when we feel tired. We feel guilty for being too emotional or for being too serious. We feel guilty about things we've said and done, and we feel guilty about things we failed to say and do, and we feel guilty about the things that we think that others think that we should have said or done or failed to say or do. We feel guilty more often than we care to admit. We even have categories for guilt, and there's a plethora of them. Guilty pleasures, guilty conscience, guilt by association, food guilt, survivor's guilt, parenting guilt, which we've already covered, Catholic guilt, and that's a big one, Talk to any Catholic you know, and they will tell you all about it. Guilt complex, and of course, a guilt trip, which isn't as fun as you would think it would be. (laughs) We sometimes even consider it to be a badge of honor, to feel guilty that we're being good and right and following what we should be if we have a level of guilt in our lives. One quarter of all adults struggle with chronic guilt, persistent excessive, unresolved, unrelenting guilt that interferes with daily life. But guilt, as an emotion, has a purpose with the capacity to benefit our lives greatly. In fact, godly guilt brings healing to the brokenhearted, releases us from the captivity of condemnation, and brings comfort to all those who are still mourning, making all things new which is what we're talking about today in a message titled, Guilt, What's It Good For? Let's pray. God, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds to the word that you have for us today. We trust you, and we trust your intentions for us are good, to bring us wisdom, insight, and understanding. We receive it today in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So what is guilt? Psychology defines guilt as a powerful physiological emotion, meaning it hits us in our mind, our body, our spirit, and several places in our body. We experience this when we believe we are responsible for doing wrong. Its purpose is to prompt us to take loving action. Guilt is good and good for us. That's it. You're welcome. Go watch the game. <laughs> so you may be wondering, why do I struggle with it so much? Why does it infect my life on a daily basis sometimes? We struggle because guilt reveals what is at the root of us. Regardless of what you've done or not done or think you've done or believe that you may be guilty for, it reveals what is at the heart of you, what may have nestled there and still remains there. It reveals when we have faulty thinking, beliefs living in us that don't line up with God's truth and we need a recalibration. It reveals where we have resistance to guilt's work, where shame may be at play, telling us that we are untrustworthy, unlovable, and unforgivable. It reveals whether we are refusing the work of guilt and have turned instead to arguments and theories and reasonings and criticism and justification and even anger to sidestep the discomfort of guilt. And it reveals whether or not we are remorseful for any wrongdoing we may have done and whether we are repentant. Now, repentance sounds like a big religious word, but all it means is that I am remorseful for the wrongs that I have done, and I am motivated and committed to make changes with action. And it is repentance that frees us from the impact of guilt because it leads us to grief. See, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Psalm 51 in scripture demonstrates this well for us. In it, we find King David remorseful and repentant of sinning. King David, a man after God's own heart, who had committed a horrible wrong, a sordid tale found in the book of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, a tale of manipulation, adultery, and murder, all premeditated, ordered, and executed by David himself. You don't need to watch soap operas, just read the Bible. <laughs> David was guilty. And when confronted by the prophet Nathan in Psalm 51, it's David's response that he left for us. And in it is his prayer and plea to God in that he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart and renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. Now, this prayer is so compelling. In it, you can hear the earnesty and the outpouring of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. This is an example of true godly guilt at work. And in it, we see three things. Responsibility, restoration, and relationship. Responsibility requires that we not only recognize when we've done wrong, but that we confess it. Not to condemn us or humiliate us or shame us, but because when we can say it and see it fully, it no longer has a hold on us. 
See, neuroscience tells us that our brain will continually bring to our attention what has not been identified, categorized, and resolved over and over, and it'll grow into worry, anxiety, confusion, and even fear until we deal with it. So ignoring it, burying it, avoiding it will only make our physiology, because remember, it's a physiological emotion, work harder, activating our stress response until it gets louder, trying to get our attention to process it. Scripture actually confirms the neuroscience in John 14, telling us that God has given us his Holy Spirit to teach us and remind us to bring us back into peace, free from the debt of sin, out of a stress response, into rest. And so when we have done wrong, when we've made a mistake, when we've chosen sin, it is God's design that we will experience guilt until we recognize it, acknowledge it, and confess it so that we can be free from it. Not to condemn us, not to condemn us, but to convict us. Condemnation gathers evidence and repeatedly points to the flaw and the failure, the problem and the pain. It accuses and punishes. But conviction leads us to a grieving that points us to Jesus. Because Jesus tells us that this current condition is temporary. The healing and redemption, salvation and forgiveness is the work he has, is and will continue to do until the day that he returns. That where I deserve a reckoning, God is mercifully and gracefully and generously restoring. Which is why in verse four, David says, against you and you alone I have sinned. It's not that he doesn't know that he has devastated a lot of people with his sin. It's because the devastation is so great that he needs to throw himself at the feet of Jesus, that the debt that he owes is too great to repay, that only God himself can settle the debt and heal what is broken. Godly guilt will bring resolution and restoration because guilt was never meant to last a lifetime. And for some of you, it has lingered a lifetime. How many years have you been carrying the weight of a guilt of something that happened so far back that it's hard to even remember where it started? You need to start asking, what is making you feel guilty? Who is trying to make you feel guilty? And what is calibrating your guilt meter? When you have confessed and repented and asked God for forgiveness, do you believe Romans 8.1 when it says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. Or 1 John 1.9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I could give you a whole list a page and page and page of verses that tell us to remind us to bring our attention to this, and yet we still live with and carry guilt. Like David, do you know God's character and his nature well enough to know that all that he has for you is compassion, mercy, grace, and kindness? What is your relationship with God? In verse 1, David begins his prayer by acknowledging God's character and sovereignty. He knows and hopes in God's mercy, his unfailing love, and great compassion, and has full confidence that God will restore him. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart and renew a right spirit in me. Where does your heart not agree with God's word? The book of Jeremiah tells us our hearts can be deceitful, harboring, hurt, trying to protect us. What old beliefs? or teachings, or assumptions, 
or accusations still remain there? Where has the spirit of blame or shame separated you from God? And now you need a renewal, a fresh wind, a fresh spirit, a steadfast spirit. In other words, where have you been led into false guilt? Because in contrast to true guilt, false guilt takes root when you feel responsible for the outcome of an event in which you had no power and no control. There was nothing that you could do. You weren't even there. And yet you go home feeling guilty about something. I could have done more. I could have intervened somewhere. I should have seen something better. Good, true, godly guilt will bring us conviction, which leads us to repentance and resolution. It gets finished. But false guilt will tell you that this error and failure is and always will be your identity and your legacy. It is persistent, excessive, unrelenting, and has no boundaries. It becomes an invasive species. It will spread and grow, getting weaved and tangled into unrelated part of your life, infecting your decisions, impacting what you do or don't do, and tainting your perspective. It will make you relive and replay and ruminate on the event over and over, a post-traumatic response exhausting you as you try to make amends, you blame yourself and take on responsibility that isn't yours to carry. False guilt blames, accuses, separates, and shames. Now personally, I don't know how many times I've prayed Psalm 51 over and over, more times than I could even count, stained by a guilt that was so deeply rooted, I didn't even know it was still there. It told me that I was not only responsible for my own choices and actions, but I was also responsible for the choices and actions of the people around me, the people in my family, the people in my workplace, the people that I served. See, it has spread. It has no boundaries. It told me that if I missed it, whatever it was, fill in the blank on any given day. And if something bad happened, that I was to blame. I should have been more vigilant. I should have been more aware. I should have been more attuned. Whether we're wrestling with true or false guilt, it will still lead you to the root. But how willing are we to follow it? How willing are we to look at it? How willing are we to sit with someone, to open it up and address it and dig out the infection that has taken root in us? And the root in me was an accusation that I did miss something sometime, somewhere. And so this responsibility I felt was actually a restitution, an atonement, a paying back and making amends. And it was separating me from the love and true knowledge of God because God did not hold that over me. And so then who did? It was a false guilt. I would pray Psalm 139 over and over, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you. And I would wait and lead me along the path of everlasting life because I can't get there on my own all without a resolution. So when I read the story of David and Bathsheba that prompted the prayer in Psalm 51, there was something familiar in Bathsheba's story. And it was hard, so hard to acknowledge. For most of my life, 
I assumed that Bathsheba was guilty. I was taught that she was, that she was politically astute, seduced her way into the king's court, turning his eye, changing his mind, having obstacles and rivals executed. But the text contradicts that. In fact, theologians historically do not agree on whether Bathsheba was an accomplice or a victim, whether she manipulated or was manipulated. And I get it. While still distasteful, it's easier for our minds to grapple with an affair which implies that there was mutual consent. Because the alternative, I mean, this is God's word. The alternative is just too hard. 2 Samuel 11.4 says, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The verbs used in the original text for take here imply a possession and a powerlessness. Even if she invited the attention of the king, what Bathsheba wanted was inconsequential. The moment that David sends men to take her to the palace, the power dynamic and the word used here in the scriptures is clear. She has no power and she has no control. And this is the hotbed for false guilt. Despite the fact that she was the daughter of David's most trusted advisors and the wife of one of his most elite soldiers with both her husband Uriah and father away at war, she had no voice. There was no one to speak on her behalf or to protect her. And I wonder, did she even think she needed protection? I mean, this was their beloved king, a man after God's own heart. Someone that her husband and her father trusted completely with their very lives. Someone she very likely grew up admiring. Despite all that, she was subject to the king, subject to his intentions, subject to his actions, as well as his subsequent efforts to cover it all up, which ruined everything. It caused her to lose everything. Her husband is murdered. Her reputation is ruined. Her future and her very life uncertain because the consequence of adultery at that time was death by stoning. When God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about this sin, it is David alone that God names as guilty. The prophet Nathan goes on to highlight the vulnerability of her position when he uses the analogy of beloved lamb to confront David, an innocent lamb who was robbed, slaughtered, and consumed by someone in a position of power. Now, there are some of you who have been living under the weight of an ongoing, unresolved guilt. I know because I hear your story. And more times than I'm willing to even admit or face or even wanted to talk about today, I hear the very story of Bathsheba and yours. Mental health organizations are grappling with an estimated one in four women and one in five men who have experienced a violation by someone in authority. And it is having devastating effects on our well-being 
80% of those individuals battle daily with chronic mental and physical health disorders. And so today, while it can be uncomfortable to face what Scripture is showing and telling us, if this is your story, I don't want to gloss over the gravity of what you have suffered and endured because it is too uncomfortable for us to bear. God wants you to know that he sees you. He hears you, and he is equally offended and heartbroken about what you have been through and what you are going through as a result. You've been in the tension of having been implicated, lured, gaslighted, groomed, pushed and pressed into situations, actions, activities, allegiances, loyalties that you grievously regret, even today. And you have been trying to remove the stain ever since, just like Bathsheba, trying to purify yourself from the uncleanness of it, wondering what you could have done differently, believing you are guilty of the incomprehensible devastation that followed like me. You have lamented the prayer of David over and over without any relief. Wash me, Lord. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop, a sign and symbol of a need for a complete purification and salvation that we cannot accomplish on our own. Because even though you did not intend for it to happen, you have been convinced that there must be something inherently wrong and broken and blameworthy within you that made you complicit. To accept blame can sometimes seem more manageable, like we can put it away than naming the vulnerability you willingly stepped into that brought you harm. You judge your God-given desire to be seen and heard to experience joy and delight as evidence of your guilt. That when your brain's dopamine system activated and your nerve endings responded, which is a biological response, there is no intention there. You count that as evidence that you were to blame. And that's when shame took a hold of you. Shame and guilt are not the same. I'm gonna say that again. Shame and guilt are not the same. Too often, people in this position have tried to use shame against you, but shame is a weapon of the enemy. It's an accusatory weapon. Shame does not belong to you. If you have shame in your life, I need you to set it down today before you walk out of this place. Guilt says you made a mistake and we're human. God knows we're gonna make a mistake. But shame says you are a mistake, that all you're capable of is mistakes. And shame, which is false guilt, just needs two things to grow, secrecy and silence. And so the antidote to false guilt is the same as true guilt. Recognize it, acknowledge it, and confess it. Now, your story may not be the same as Bathsheba's, but like me, there was something familiar in it. Where do you need to recognize that you've been living under the blame, accusation, and fear that you may be found guilty of something you missed or failed to see or could not get out of or could have prevented, and you've been held captive by it ever since? 
Where do you need to acknowledge that you've been holding on to guilt, using false guilt even because it seems too hard to see and say what actually happened to you? Or it seems too risky to give it all fully to God and trust him and his forgiveness so you've kept it just in case. Where do you need to confess? What's your story? Where has shame kept you stuck, held captive, trying to make amends? If false guilt has had a hold on you, I need you to hear me clearly. It is time that you start answering it. Push back. Too many of us let that script go and go until we're in our beds and crippled by the weight of it. You need to respond from who you are and who God has called you to be. Even if you can't see it now, can you trust that what he says over you is true? Use your voice. You have a voice, authority. You have been called, created in the image of God. Stand up against the accusations of the enemy. When those arrows come toward you, deflect them with the power of the word that is in you. If you don't have it in you, then you can have it before you, but use it so that it fights back. Nothing and no one can come against you. You belong to God who is already victorious, who has had a plan since the very beginning to crush the serpent's head. He may strike you, it may wound you, it may hurt, but you have the power and authority of the one in whose image you were made to crush its head. Reply, respond when the voice of accusation comes and it will come prowling around. Answer it, answer it like Paul and answer it like Isaiah and say no weapon not shame or blame or accusation or condemnation will prosper. I will refute every tongue that accuses me. I hear accusation, nope, not today, Satan. There is no condemnation because I belong to Jesus. In Bathsheba's story, 30 years pass. Doesn't matter how long it's been. You can do this today. 30 years pass before we see her name again in the book of Kings, at the end of David's reign, when she stands before David and has found her voice, a voice that comes from her identity and her name, Bathsheba. Man, I have not said her name enough. Bathsheba, which means daughter of the oath. And she speaks God's promises over herself and her son to the king. Scripture says, when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. And then watch this. Then he had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. Bathsheba ends her life at the right hand of the king's throne, a position of honor and status, the seat that Jesus holds next to God the Father. Jesus redeems us. Bathsheba is attributed as a source of wisdom we see in Proverbs 31. And it is Bathsheba who holds the privilege of being one of only five women who are named in the genealogy of Jesus. Through good, godly guilt, David is forgiven and restored. But Bathsheba 
is redeemed. And all by God's grace. See, grace is the unmerited and undeserving favor of God. It is the antidote to guilt. It doesn't erase consequences. It doesn't excuse wrong or let us purposely sin. But grace is so lavish, so generous, so inequitable, and so unreasonable that it changes our focus. It stops us from focusing on what we have done or what we have been through so that we can focus on who God is. God is love. He doesn't condemn you. All of scripture is a story of him lovingly and kindly pursuing us to convict us to be who he created us to be, to live out our names and reflect his image on earth. And so he sent his son, Jesus, as ransom to pay the price on the cross to settle the debt and redeem us all so the consequences of your sin or someone else's no longer hold you captive. You are free in Jesus' name. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he and she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things, all things have become new. Do you believe it? Will you receive it? Will you set down shame that has tainted you, that has pressed itself on you, that has absorbed into you and affected your perspective and tainted your decisions? Will you set that down today? Where is guilt have a hold on you? If you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the one who does all of this, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. With all heads bowed, and all eyes closed. Would you raise your hand if you'd like to receive the freedom that Jesus is offering you today? Thank you. Yes, thank you. Let us pray. Repeat after me. Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please change my heart. Heal my heart, heal my life, make me new, be my Lord, be my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. With all eyes closed and heads bowed, I wonder if you've been struggling with the weight of guilt, whether it's been a true guilt because there's something that you've done that the enemy keeps accusing you about, or if it's a false guilt, and you need to give that weight to God, would you raise your hand? I'd love to pray well. All right. God, we lay ourselves before you, Lord, knowing that we carry things, Lord, that you never intended us to carry, and so we give them to you today, God, trusting you fully that in the moments where we have disbelief that you will send your Holy Spirit to remind us and teach us that you are for us and that you are with us and that your intentions for us are good, that you are healing and restoring and drawing us closer because we're yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week. Thank you.